0: Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 67 Game Designer's Workshop. As I mentioned last week, this week's show topic was a listener-requested topic. Devlin Donnelly reached out to us on the old role playing History Twitter feed and requested this topic, noting that he was a big fan of theirs, had played several of their games over the years, and suggested that it would be really cool if we covered GDW on the show. I replied, I thanked him, and I told him that while last week's show had already been written, we'd do his request this week. So thanks to Devlin for your suggestion. Also, you might want to follow the new Twitter handle at BadGMP since we'll be taking the roleplaying history Twitter handle down in the next couple of weeks. But hey, at least you're following us and we do appreciate it. And if you have an idea for an episode of this show, reach out to me on any of the socials or by email and we can make that happen. After all, I do this show for you. So if you're hearing something you want to hear, well, that just makes me extra happy. However, I do think Devlin would probably appreciate it if I stopped with the rambling and got on with the subject. So uh, why don't we crank up the tour bus and get to it? Game Designers Workshop was established on June 22nd, 1973. For the record, I was a little bit over two months old at the time, which is just another example of how damned old I'm getting, but I digress. The offices of the company were based out of Normal, Illinois, and many of our Midwestern listeners probably know where that is, though they've probably heard of it as the second part of the Bloomington-Normal combination of cities, as the city of Bloomington is usually included when Normal is named. I I don't know why, I think it's just Illinois thing. Don't don't get me started. Frank Chadwick, Rich Banner, Mark Miller, and Lauren Wiseman were the four who originally founded the company, and the original purpose of setting up the company was to publish war games, both of the board game and miniature varieties. However, over time, they also expanded into tabletop role-playing games, and we'll get into a few of those in just a few minutes. GDW acquired the Conflict Games Company from its owner, John Hill, not too long after they were established, and that brought the opportunity to publish established product under the new line. One of the big selling points for GDW was that over a 20 year period, they put out a new product about every 22 days. I want you to think about that for a minute. One new product, at least released every 22 days for more than 20 years. I know I said 20 a moment ago, but it was basically for the entire life of the company. It's a hell of a lot of product, and they were able to maintain that release schedule because of their varied foci. I mean, tabletop RPGs can take a bit of time to work out the kinks on, but you could still release supplements and adventures fairly regularly once you get the main rules out. Board games can sometimes be the same way, but once you've got a basic theme you wanna follow, like war games, it becomes easier to plug a type of war game into the basic design of the board games you've previously done. And miniatures? Well, so long as you've got a steady stream of ideas for new minis, it's mostly about getting the molds created and the new minis poured out. However, despite my making this sound easy, that's still a whole lot of product coming out in a short amount of time. Now I know my numbers here are probably not 100% accurate, but here's an approximate count of different games they put out over the years. 7 tabletop role-playing games, 83 board games, 14 miniature rules games, and that doesn't even count all the individual minis they were putting out during that time, and I gotta note that several of those board games, Arctic Front, Persian Gulf, and Southern Front, were part of the Third World War series of games, and those were like over the top popular with war board gamers. Various titles in the lines earned 29 different awards in the gaming industry, from the H.G. Wells Award to Origins Awards. GDW also published three different magazines over the course of its existence, and we'll get into those a little later on in the show. Getting back into the timeline, at some point during all this success, John Harshman joined the company as a creator and editor of games, and he's responsible for many of the top-selling games produced by GDW over the years. You'll also remember that we discussed Liz Danforth and Michael Stackpole's involvement with the company over the years, so we can also say that GDW wasn't afraid to bring in top-notch talent to produce their games. So with all of these successful products, why don't we hear about Game Designer's Workshop as one of the top names in gaming today? Well, if you'll remember our discussions early in the history of this podcast about the timelines of the industry, the late 1990s saw a large number of companies go under. Most of those went under due to financial issues brought on by a variety of different issues. Some of those were self-inflicted, some of them weren't. GDW was one of those companies that found itself having serious financial issues and the company officially disbanded on February 29th, 1996, but we still have the games they created and the memories we got from them, which is why we're here today. For the remainder of the show today, we're going to dig deeper into some of the releases from GDW, and like I said last week, I'm going to bet you've at the very least heard of some of these if you've actually not played or read them. Let's start with the role playing game most role players probably remember GDW for Traveler. Traveler is a science fiction role playing game. It was released by GDW in 1977. Created by Mark Miller, Frank Chadwick, John Harshman, and Lauren Wiseman, it was inspired by a list of sci fi books, among them the Dumarest of Terra saga, written by Edwin Charles Tubb. Now, We've briefly covered Traveler in the past when we did our timelines, so some of what we're looking at today will seem familiar, but since we've never done a deep dive of the game, let's get into it. Back when we covered Traveler during the timelines, I mentioned the first release of the game, but for those who've joined us along the way and haven't caught all the episodes in the archives, I'm gonna get into it again here. And by the way, you need to correct that not having caught all the archived episodes thing. I refer back to other episodes frequently during this show. Anyway, the original game books in the 1977 release were digest size books, and you can specifically think of Reader's Digest if you're looking for a specific size for the books. They were also black, which led to them being called the Little Black Books, which makes perfect sense to me. Now, Three of these booklets were the main rules, and were sold together as a boxed set of rules. However, the early support materials for the game also used that digest format, which helped Traveler find its niche in the game market with a cool and different design. As the first edition of the game rolled along, supplements started being released in full-sized books, which I do have to admit are much easier to read, and several new editions of the game have been released over the years which have overhauled the rules and made changes, some were significant and others were not. However, we're still looking at the first edition, so let me slow my roll-up on this a bit and back up. Before we get into later editions, it does need to be noted that the first edition rules were eventually compiled into a single rule book, and that book was of a more normal size for rulebooks. In other words, not digest-sized. The supplements for this edition covered all of the areas of gameplay you'd expect, advanced character generation, capital ship design, robots, adventures, you name it. GDW also took advantage of the success of Traveler to release eight boxed war games as tie-ins to their role-playing game. Oh, and some of you might have heard of this version of Traveler being called Classic Traveler, That's a name that's been connected to it over the past uh, 15 years or so, and it's one of those retro names that sometimes gets assigned to older games, either by fans or by the publishers themselves. By the mid-1980s, GDW decided Traveler was due for an update. The next edition of the game was released in 1987 and was designed by Digest Group Publications. I say next edition because we're not going to number the releases in this show. That's mostly because the individual publishers of the games over the years didn't really do it either, and there have been 13 different versions released over the years. So just stick with me and we'll make our way through this with a minimal amount of confusion. I hope. The next version was set during the Rebellion, which we'll cover in a few. The supplements and magazines released during this period detailed the progression of the Rebellion from the initial assassination of the Emperor in 1116 to the collapse of large scale interstellar trade in about 1124, which is when the Hard Times supplement picks up. GDW had one more traveler version to release, and that came out in 1993. Titled The New Era, it was set in the former territory of the Third Imperium after interstellar government and society had basically collapsed. This version of the game introduced Virus, which is a silicon chip life form that infected and took over computers. The mechanics of this version of the game were a little bit different as well, using GDW's house system, which was built on Twilight 2000's second edition. This was a much more realistic version of sci-fi, doing away with things like a virtually unlimited laser range, reactionless thrusters, and other items deemed to be too fantastic for reality. And yes, I know I just used the word realistic when talking about a sci-fi game, just trust me on this one. While the new era was the last version we got from GDW, it was far from the last version of this classic game we would get overall. Imperium Games got a hold of the license, and in 1996 they released Mark Miller's Traveler. Set in the early days of the third Imperium, the game has a smaller, newly formed empire, surrounded by regressed groups or barbaric worlds, which gives a more fantasy style slant to the gameplay. And the mechanics for this fourth version of the game are basically a mix of classic Traveler and the new era. Next up we got a GURPS version of Traveler. Designed by Lauren K. Wiseman and published in 1998, this version of the game uses the third edition of the GURPS system. What makes this version even more unique is that it occurs in an alternate timeline to the four previous editions. In this timeline, the Rebellion never occurred and Virus was never released. It made for a much different storytelling style, but proved to be popular with gamers. And Steve Jackson Games released a number of supplements, including some for all of the major races, some of the minor ones, Interstellar Trade, Starships, and much more. By 2002, the game industry was in full-on D20 fever, and Traveler wasn't spared. Quick Link Interactive published Traveler 20 that year, and uses the D20 system as its engine. The game itself is set at the time of the Sumani Rim War, which is right around Imperial year 990. For those who know Traveler well, it's about a century before the era of the original game. Once QLI lost their license for Traveler, the game was repackaged and released as the generic Sci-Fi 20 system, by the way. GURPS struck again in the Traveler universe, releasing GURPS Traveler Interstellar Wars in 2006. This was released to capitalize on the then new fourth edition of GURPS, and it brought changes to the previous materials. Steve Jackson Games rolled the timeline back to 2170, and this made Interstellar Wars unique in the Traveler universe to this point, as that date is several millennia earlier than any of the other games would typically be set. For the record, this time period covers Earth's early days in interstellar space travel, and goes through the period just after the Third Interstellar War between the Terran Confederation and the Circa Empire. Explanations about some of this are coming, I promise. This is just a hella large release timeline to hit. Comstar Games ported Traveler to the Hero system in 2006, creating Traveler Hero. Other than announcing that as a part of the timeline, I don't really have anything else remarkable about that release to mention, which should tell you a lot about how well-received it was. Sorry. Sorry. Mongoose Publishing was next to get a Traveler license. Their version of Traveler released in 2008 and got both a traditional format release and an open game license SRD so that other games could build around the system. The influence for Mongoose's version is the original game. Mongoose made this version their own by updating careers and technology since there'd been a huge increase in technology in the real world between Traveler's initial release and this version's release. Mongoose supported their version with a number of supplements, and overall it was fairly well received in the gaming world. And we're still not done with versions. In 2013, yet another player got into the Traveler license game. Far Future Enterprises released their own version of the game by reworking and combining concepts for many of the earlier rule sets. They called their version Traveler 5, and the core rule book is a rules mechanics reference which pulled all its information from Adventures and other supplements. It got an update in 2019 called version 5.10 and was released after a successful Kickstarter campaign. That cleaned up errata and changed the format. The most obvious format change was that it came in three books, Characters and Combat, Starships, and Worlds and Adventures. Mongoose Publishing gets the last words on the Traveler editions to this point. They released a second version of their own rules in 2016, then updated them in 2022. They kept the original rules basically in place, but went with a full color presentation in the book. Also, this version is not open game license, so no third party stuff for this edition. This edition also includes pre-university and military academy education options, the inclusion of skill specializations so that you avoid the glut of skills to choose from, alterations to equipment descriptions, and changes to spaceship operations and combat. This version of Traveler should be available at your friendly local neighborhood game shop, so if you're interested, drop in and inquire. Many of the previous editions are available used, so if you've got a good used book dealer, ask them about it, or see if you can get them in legal PDF form from the usual sources. Now, this is the point where I usually drop in a review or two, and for the record, I've got about four pages of reviews. However, rather than pick one or two, I wanted instead to do this. In review after review, and edition after edition, all of my reviews, regardless of whether it's Dragon Magazine, Ares, The Space Gamer, or any other source, all say pretty much the same thing. Traveler is THE space exploration game you should be playing. Sure, each review has their own reason, but at the end, they all agree it's the best thing going in the genre. And the fans agree. In the 1996 reader poll by Arcane Magazine of the 50 most popular role-playing games of all time, Traveler was ranked third. Paul Pettingale, Arkane's editor, said this, quote, Although originally intended as a generic science fiction system, Traveler quickly became linked with the Imperium campaign background developed by GDW. This background offers a great degree of freedom for individual referees to run campaigns of their own devising, while providing enough basic groundwork to build from, and has proved to be immensely successful. Everything from political intrigue to action-packed mercenary actions, trading, or scientific exploration is possible, and a lot more besides. Traveler is one of the true classics of the role-playing hobby. End quote. Traveler the New Era won the 1993 Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Rules. (laughs) That same version won the 1994 Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Rules. And in 1996, Traveler was inducted into the Origins Hall of Fame. Over the years, Traveler has been optioned for computer games, books, comic strips, and even albums. And that last one comes courtesy of heavy metal band The Lord Weird Slow Feg, who based their concept album Traveler on the game. And for those of you who are curious, we are going to discuss 2300 AD, which is kind of an offshoot of Traveler. We're going to cover that in a couple of minutes. But first, we need to do that thing that we do here, and that's dig into the setting and the design elements of the game. Let's start with the setting itself. As Paul Pettengale noted, Traveler initially had no setting. It was supposed to be a generic science fiction game. However, as the supplements began to be released, we got the setting most gamers know and love, the human-dominated, third imperium it's the largest interstellar empire in charted space and it consists of feudalistic unions of worlds the races in the game are dominated by descendants of humanity called humanati in the traveler rules these break down further into the solomani who emigrated from earth in the last few thousand years the Velani, who were transplanted from Earth tens of thousands of years ago by the ancients who founded the first Imperium, and the Zodani, who are psychic humans ruled by psionically gifted nobles. Humans aren't the only race in Traveler, though. There are the Asean, who are cat-like creatures, the Droyan, who are winged lizard-like creatures, the Hivers, the Kakri, who are centaur-like militant and vegetarian, though I'm not sure why the vegetarian part is necessarily important, and the Varger, who are wolf-like. Oh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the ancients. In the distant past, these were a major race. So major in fact that ruins of their civilization can be found throughout charted space, and their artifacts are more technologically advanced than anything in the current game. Think of it as Atlantis in our own mythology, though it's been proven the ancients actually existed in the game. For some reason still unknown, the ancients transplanted humans from earth to dozens of different worlds, removed worlds from earth, created the Varga from them, and then transplanted them onto another world, and then they performed a number of other different engineering projects. They wound up destroying their civilization in a catastrophic civil war, so there's that history as well. Now, I normally break down the specifics of the game engine when we look at a game, but with so many different versions, we'd be doing episodes of this show for a couple of months. Instead, we're going to look at some of the key features of Traveler that tend to be the same from version to version. The first of these is the idea of commerce, which, quite frankly, is the driving force of civilization in the game. Traveler is also human-centric, but cosmopolitan. I mean, the rules do focus on humans, but there are sufficient rules provided to play aliens or to use them as NPCs in your game. Now, it needs to be noted, communication in Traveler is limited. Basically, there's no such thing as faster than light information transfer. To make that even more simple to understand, there's no subspace radio or hyperwave like you'd see in other space-based games. Communication is limited to the speed of travel, which that kind of impacts how decisions can be made. That means decisions need to be made on the local level rather than from a centralized empire like you'd see in Star Wars. Morals and morality are pretty much the same as you'd see anywhere in the real world, but they're still a focus of this game. The sociological feature of the game is that nobility tends to make all of the decisions, and they use titles like Baron, Duke, and Archduke. Society in Traveler is very stratified, with high, mid, and low class existing, and social status even being a primary character attribute. Now, insofar as character creation, there there are a few basics we can cover. Traveler uses what's called a life path system for creation. Characters get skills and experience during a minigame. This allows the player to make choices that determine the character's life up to the point where the adventure begins. And death during character development is possible in some editions of the game. I'd note that this particular mechanic has not only become infamous, it's developed an almost cult following in certain parts of the gaming internet. Okay, so there are six primary characteristics. Strength, dexterity, endurance, intelligence, education, and social standing. In most versions of the game, these are generated with a 2d6 roll. Now, variant characteristics exist, like charisma and cast, which would replace primary characteristics, and those are used to kind of flavor out alien characters. Equipment in Traveler tends to come in three flavors. Low-tech, like shields, pikes, swords, and you know. High-tech, cybernetics and artifacts from ancient civilizations. And what we call the hard sci-fi, energy weapons would fall into that category. Starships exist, obviously, and there are as many different types as there are stars in the sky. Okay, not really, but you you get my point. Worlds are another part of Traveler that are as numerous and as varied as they can be. From rocky planetoids to large gas giants, again, if you can think of it, it exists. All right, so I know I kind of ran through that, but I wanted to get a whole lot of different things covered in today's episode. I mean, I I probably should have covered Traveler in its own episode, and and maybe we'll expand on it in another form another time. For now, let me just say this. If you love a good sci-fi game system, I strongly recommend Traveler. Next up, I wanted to cover a game that was sort of based on Traveler, but not actually a part of Traveler what would ultimately become 2300 AD had a very interesting origin. In 1984, the creators of Traveler wanted a gritty post-apocalyptic game to drop for fans. So they created Twilight 2000, which was set in the year 2000 following a nuclear war. While there was some interest in that game, GDW decided that they needed to get an entry into the hard science space game. So they took Twilight 2000, moved it forward three centuries, and changed the game to reflect the fact that humanity had recovered from the war enough to start traveling to nearby star systems. Now, for the record, this game had no ties to Traveler. It even used a completely different game engine. But you know what the rule of marketing is, right? Tie it to a successful property and start printing money. That's what they did when they released the game in 1986. Titled Traveler 2300, it was released as a boxed set with a 48-page player manual, a 48-page referee's manual, an 8-page forms book, an 8-page near-star list, an 8-page introductory adventure called the Tricolor Shadow, a paper map with a 3D representation of the star systems within 50 light-years of Earth, and it came with a 10-sided die. Of course, calling a game Traveler 2300 would lead gamers to think it was tied into Traveler, and that confusion led GDW to make a decision. For the second edition, released in 1988, they retitled it 2300 AD. Needless to say, the confusion cost them sales. Both versions of this game sold nowhere near Traveler, and most historians blame the name Confusion. When other publishers started putting out Cyberpunk releases like Shadowrun and Cyberpunk, GDW decided to add that flavor to this game, first releasing the Earth Cybertech Sourcebook in 1989. They also released a number of supplements to expand on that theme, but they could never seem to get the sales up, and they eventually stopped the line. Shannon Applecline summed it up best in Designers and Dragons, quote, The last few 2300 books supported the darker cyberpunk future, but it wasn't enough to sustain the line, which came to an end in 1990, end quote. Quick Link Interactive tried to revive the line in 2007, releasing 2300 AD for their Traveler 20 game, and Mongoose Publishing released the 2300 AD setting sourcebook for their version of Traveler. Sales were okay, but not enough to bring 2300 AD back as its own game. I was going to get deeper into the mechanics and setting of 2300 AD, but suffice to say that when compared to Shadowrun and Cyberpunk, 2300 AD, in my opinion, just doesn't add up. I'm not trying to disrespect it if you're a fan, it's just the gritty realism of 2300 AD is definitely interesting, but once it was decided to start shoehorning cybertech into the game, it began to lose its focus and it just kind of blended into the surroundings. The initial concept, whereby a basic engine drive was created for limited interstellar travel, that was very interesting. The concept of traveling to new worlds and seeing what's there in a realistic manner is enticing. So if that interests you, see if you can find Traveler 2300 either used or in PDF, check it out and get back to me. I've got two more GDW games I want to cover as a part of this show, and the next in line is Dark Conspiracy. Created by Lester Smith and released in 1991, Dark Conspiracy is, as the title slightly suggests, a dark horror game set in the near future. It's been noted that 17 different artists contributed to this project, including Larry Elmore, Earl Geyer, Tim Broadstreet, Janet Alucio, and Elizabeth Danforth. In other words, a who's who of game art in the late 80s and 90s. The first edition was supported with supplements, and the universe in which it's set was further supported by a trilogy of novels written by Michael Stackpole. GDW supported the hell out of this game in its own magazines, and other company magazines like Dragon and White Wolf also provided good coverage of the game. The first edition uses the skill-based system from Twilight 2000, upon which it's based. This skill system uses the D10 for resolution of skills. Character creation is also interesting because it's a multi-step process. The player first selects career terms for the character, which specifies either a predetermined set of skills that the character gains, or it allows a certain number of points to be distributed among a particular set of skills on a list. And as you would expect, the skills are tied to attributes, which can either be rolled or straight up point bought. Each career term also provides a set number of contacts, which can come in handy during a session. The build system also has a built-in mechanism to kind of thwart the min-maxer in your group. Each career term ages a character four years. Once the age limit is reached, the player has to make roles to prevent the loss of attributes that are physically based due to their aging. It's not perfect, but it's one of the better ideas I've seen out there. There are a number of cool weapons and equipment in the books as well, and they're well supported with artwork because, as Lester Smith himself noted, quote... As a role player myself, I want to be able to see what something looks like, if my character's going to be carrying it. I hate picking something up for its stats and having no idea of what it looks like. End quote. Well said, Mr. Smith. Well said. While there was decent interest in Dark Conspiracy when it first came out, by 1993, interest had declined enough that GDW discontinued the line. When the company itself went under a few years later, Dark Conspiracy Enterprises was created, and they got a license for the game. They published the second edition in 1997. It was a two-folio system with one for players and the other for the GM. There were also two versions of the game released. A basic edition, which was shorter, and a master edition which was, as you would imagine, much more complex. Those sold well enough that a third edition was being considered by the mid-2000s. In fact, Dark Conspiracy Enterprises had licensed the game to the Gamers Conglomerate to actually produce that third edition, but TGC never actually did that. Not to be deterred, DCE granted the option to Kinstaff Media in 2010. They created a division they called Three Hombres Games, and they published the third edition as a PDF in 2012. Needless to say, Three Hombres put together a new rules system that revised the combat rules and changed how characters are created. Three Hombres was working on a number of supplements, but they went out of business before they could actually get them to print. Now. As of the recording of this show, there are a number of rumors out there that Clockwork Publishing has acquired the rights to Dark Conspiracy and are working up a fourth edition of the game. Should that edition see the light, we'll do a piece either for the website or for YouTube to cover what that's all about. All right, let's do a couple of reviews here since I've been a little review light today. Alan Varney reviewed the game in the November 1991 edition of Dragon Magazine. He said, quote, I might legitimately question how well the rules aid the various kinds of horror, end quote. He concluded that, quote, The dark conspiracy game targets experienced referees who already know the kinds of horror adventures they want to run. Its long and very complex rules offer much value to players who want a fair shot or multiple auto-fire shots against the monsters. This game is a giant step forward for GDW in size, presentation, and imagination. End quote. In that 1996 Arcane Reader poll for the 50 most popular role-playing games that I seem to cite on a weekly basis, Dark Conspiracy came in at 43. Paul Pettengale had these thoughts, quote, "...players take on the roles of people who have learnt of the evil forces at work in the world and are struggling to defeat them. The evil forces have infiltrated what remains of the government and powerful corporations. A great blend of cyberpunk, Call of Cthulhu, and conspiracy paranoia." End quote. As we've noted, finding a copy of the game is going to be difficult, but since PDFs are legally available, I'd suggest checking sites like DriveThruRPG to see what they've got. The final game we're covering today is one I probably wouldn't have normally even considered, but since the creator happens to be who he is, I just kinda had to. Gary Gygax joined forces with GDW in 1992 to release the game Dangerous Journeys. Originally, Gary wanted to call the game Dangerous Dimensions, but TSR threatened a lawsuit if that title was used, with the argument being the DD abbreviation Gary wanted to use was a little too close to D&D for TSR's comfort, so the name was changed. Gary treated Dangerous Journeys as his ability to clean up what he saw as the flaws and limitations in AD&D, among those being the skill system and the class-based restrictions on weapons, which were pretty inflexible, if you'll remember. Gary was in full fantasy mode for this, as you might expect from one of the fathers of the fantasy game genre. So why don't many, if any, of us remember the game? That would be because the publication lifetime was very short. Gary got the core book, called Mythos, plus six supplements released, before TSR finally decided they'd had enough of these shenanigans and filed a lawsuit against GDW. As TSR still had decent stroke inside the industry, GDW bowed to the suit and stopped production of the series. That being said, some books got published, but I'd imagine that those who have one probably don't want to part with it, so good luck finding a used copy. And insofar as PDFs, I'm going to venture a guess that there aren't any legal ones out there, and you know we only promote legal stuff on this show. Gary Gygax did say on his own website later on that the mythos setting that got published was only the first of many different settings he'd had in mind for the game before the plug got pulled. One of them, the city of Ascalon, was actually advertised, but it, of course, never made it to market. No reviews on this one, since the chances of finding a copy to play are pretty slim. Okay, so we've looked at a few of the games GDW was responsible for over the years, but I also wanted to cover the three magazines the company published. First up is The Grenadier. The Grenadier is the spiritual successor to GDW's Europa Newsletter, and the first issue published in 1978. For you trivia fans out there, the very first issue was actually titled The Paper Soldier, but the new title was in place for the January 1978 issue. And in an even deeper trivia deep dive, the full title of the magazine was actually The Grenadier Wargaming Quarterly. There you go. Initially, the magazine was actually more of a digest coming in at five and a half inches by eight and a half inches and only had 32 pages. Its focus was solely on GDW products, as well as the general military history of those games subjects. By the time issue four came out, the restrictions were somewhat relaxed and other companies began to have their games discussed in the pages of the Grenadier. Issue 12 from January, 1981, was actually the final issue published by GDW. Their intentions were to shelve the magazine entirely, but Jeffrey Tibbetts offered to keep the magazine going and made the deal to take it over. The first issue under Tibbetts' control was issue 13 from June 1981, and the official publisher was called J. Tibbets and Son. And that was more true than the name would suggest. Tibbetts and his son Robert actually physically printed that first issue on a press in the garage of author Thomas J. Bates. Issue 14 saw a larger magazine style brought to the Grenadier, with the size becoming the standard 8.5 by 11. Tibbetts continued his editor through Issue 35, where he gave his farewell and announced that Dr. J. Salover would be taking over as editor of the magazine. However, that never happened. The Grenadier would never put out another issue. Next up on our newsstand review is Journal of the Traveler's Aid Society. This was specifically designed to support GDW's Traveler role-playing game and was created by Lauren K. Wiseman to do that very thing. Wiseman was the initial editor and the first issue came out in 1979. Over the years, there were a number of different writers contributing to the magazine, or at least that's what we were supposed to think. I mean, sure, there were several, but one of them was cheating a little bit. See, J. Andrew Keith was writing so much stuff for JTAS that he took on not one, but two pseudonyms to handle all of the bylines. For those of you with copies of those older magazines, the names John Marshall and Keith Douglas were the ones he chose. He got busted when somebody did a word-by-word analysis of the articles and figured out one person had written all of them. I don't know why somebody took that much time, but you know what? Maybe I shouldn't go poking bears that don't need poking. Um, Great work out there, you folks keeping us all on our toes. (coughs) Hmm. Once Mark Miller took over some of the editor duties, he decided that rather than use modern dates for the magazine, they'd instead use the in-game Imperium calendar, advancing at 90 days for each quarterly issue. The second edition of the magazine added the Traveler News Service column, which provided current events in the Imperium. GDW also used the magazine to further plots for the game. Issue number 9 from 1981 described the start of a war with the alien species Zodani. That war actually came to be in the books for the game a short time later. GDW published their last issue of JTAS in 1984 with issue 24. They replaced it with Challenge, which we'll get to momentarily. Imperium Games picked up JTAS in 1996 and published two issues before they dropped it themselves. Steve Jackson Games resurrected the JTAS in 2000 when they licensed Traveler, though they did it as an online magazine rather than a physical one. However, they also allowed the magazine to cease existence. Mongoose Publishing also resurrected JTAS, publishing six issues in 2020 as a part of their license before allowing it to cease publication. For as few issues as were actually published, JTAS has a loyal following. And if you think I'm kidding about that, Google search it and check out the fan reviews online. Okay, so I mentioned Challenge a few moments ago, so let's jump into this third and final magazine from GDW. Now, GDW didn't just end JTAS without notice. They'd announced in Issue 22 that a new magazine would be replacing it, so when Issue 24 brought JTAS to the end... Challenge was already in the wings to take over. It was a standard magazine size, which we discussed a moment ago, and this style allowed for the printing of deck plans or sector maps. It was also decided that Challenge would cover all of GDW's games, not just Traveler. When it debuted in 1986, it was intended to be bi-monthly, and GDW decided to maintain continuity by numbering the first issue at 25, since the last issue of JTAS had been 24. It also included a separate section called Journal of the Traveler's Aid Society, and that ran through issue 28. It was with that issue that the traveler coverage became less and less prevalent, while Twilight 2000, 2300 AD, and Space 1889 got the bulk of the love. Issue 30 expanded the size of the magazine to 64 pages, and there were more changes on the way. Michelle Sturgeon took over the editor's duties with issue 35 in 1988, and she expanded the magazine's coverage to sci-fi games from other publishers, including Shadowrun and Paranoia. In 1991, it was decided to switch Challenge's release schedule to monthly, but this only lasted through 1993, with issue 68 being the first on the return to buy monthly. The beginning of the magazine's end was in 1992, when only four issues were published. Issue 77 would be the final released, and it dropped in 1995. Needless to say, GDW's end in 1996 brought the end of the magazine itself, barring another company choosing at some point to grab the license on their own, though I don't see that happening after 26 years. I've actually got two reviews, and I'd like to end our coverage of the magazines with them. The first comes from Jim Bambra, the January 1989 edition of Dragon. He called Challenge, quote, an excellent source of adventures, ideas, and hardware for GDW's Twilight 2000, 2300 AD, and Mega Traveler role-playing games, but many of its other features are also easily converted to other game systems, end quote. Alan Varney did his own review in the October 1990 Dragon, and he commented on the expansion of the magazine to cover all sci-fi games, quote, there's no challenge in learning to like this solid periodical, end quote. And with that, we bring our deep dive into Game Designer's Workshop and some of their products to a close. My thanks to Devin Donnelly for his suggestion for this week's show, and I hope I did it justice. By the way, if you have an idea for a topic for the show, all of the ways you can reach me to get them to me are coming up in just a minute. Next week, I'm going to do one for myself, and that's covering some of the controversies surrounding D&D specifically and the role-playing industry as a whole in the 1980s. We'll talk about Patricia Pulling, Bad, and some of the real-life incidents that caused so many to get their knickers in a bind about role-playing games at that time. (laughs) That's going to be a pretty interesting ride. Before I get out of here today, I'd like to encourage you to listen to the other fine program we produce, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. We're working on a Deadlands Classic campaign that we built from scratch, and each week we build more of the story for you to run for your group. Every other week, I also add a recap from my own group, which is playing what we create, and therefore providing feedback for you to take into consideration when you run your own game. Bad GM's campaign build-along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on the website at badgmproductions.com. Net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty free, license free music needs. Role playing history is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM prod, Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube at Bad GM Productions, email badgmproductions at gmail.com, and online the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, it's satanic panic and pagan rituals. No, sorry, that's a slight exaggeration. It's our coverage of a whole lot of people getting their knickers in a twist about role-playing games. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your Role-Playing History.